A key aspect um, of mindfulness practice is how we practice with Vedana. Uh, Vedana is considered um, uh, in some ways the key to freedom. So what Vedana is, the translation, the most common translation is uh, feeling tone. It refers to the feeling tone of all of our experiences. They're either um, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. So everything we experience, you know, from, from the moment we're born to the moment we die, is just a constant stream of pleasant, neither, unpleasant, neither. And um, so this is, co- you know, considered a very important aspect because uh, it's when these things happen that we get caught in different ways, that we get caught in suffering. We experience our lives um, through what are called the six sense doors. The five um, external senses, you know, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touch. And the six doors consider the door of the mind. That's kind of like everything else, uh, which is our internal senses, you know, like temperature, pressure, balance. Uh, but also our memories and fantasies and uh, uh, interpretations, all the stuff that happens in the mind. And so every one of those experiences, whether they're external or internal, has one of those three flavors, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And um, some people prefer, um, I, like, I actually like the word valence better. It's not as commonly used. Um, in, I think in psychology, it's meant uh, as the um, intrinsic attractiveness of, of an object or, a, uh, or uh, an event or situation, uh, or the intrinsic aversiveness as a negative valence. Um, but I like to think of it in, um, I prefer to think of it kind of like in the science, the when if, if you are uh, familiar in science uh, with the periodic table, uh, you know, things have like a positive charge or a negative charge or neutral. You know, like the inert gases are neutral, you know. And, and so uh, to me, by when I think of the valence, it kind of makes me feel a little more objective towards my mind. So when I experience pleasant, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, that's you know, kind of like a, a positively charged uh, element in the periodic table. It gives me that little bit of distance that lets me not get caught in it so easily. Um, but however you think of it, you know, it, uh, it, it works. <laughs> um, so the other thing to c- consider with, um, uh, you know, valence or feeling tone is that the context um, is a huge part of the experience because there's a sensation and then it's how we interpret the sensation. Um, I'll give you an, uh, a couple of examples, you know. Imagine we're here, sitting in here. It's a pretty, really comfy day, right? You know, it's uh, really nice weather. Everybody's pretty comfortable. Well, we've had days here on retreat where it's been 100. And, you know, m- and people are kind of maybe not saying anything out loud, but generally <laughs> uh, complaining to themselves about how hot it is. You know, please turn on the air conditioner. Um, 
And some of us who felt that way, I mean, I remember definitely feeling that way on retreat, and um, are very happy to then go into a 180-degree sauna and go, ah, oh, this feels so good. You know, so it's context, right? You know, I'm trying to meditate here. I want to be just right, you know. And um, another, another example you might consider is, um, you know, if you take your hand, your thumb, and just kind of press kind of the gently the inside of your thigh for a moment. Just press it so you feel something. But it's neither, you know, don't make it hurt, you know, and, and doesn't partic- don't massage it so it feels good. Just kind of be there, you know, kind of neutral, right? Now, imagine that the person next to you was doing that. You know, would that change how, how you interpret that sensation? Or someone you really dislike did that. You know, that, that's another piece. So um, uh, the context uh, of our sensations really affect uh, um, how we feel about it. Um, you know, I was really into reflexology when I was younger and, and, you know, deep body work, you know, and, and these really things that might be painful kind of transform themselves into being, oh, that's really good, that's really deep, and that's getting my tension out, you know, because it's so good for me that, that it transformed itself. Um, kind of like coffee, you know, I, you know, the first time I drank coffee, when, I mean, I tasted coffee when I was seven, and, and I couldn't believe my mother was giving this to her friends, you know, it was just <laughs> vile stuff, and, um, and then the next time I tried it, it was in college, you know, and I was kind of dragging a little bit, and, and my friend said, oh, have a cup of coffee, you know, somehow it never tasted that bad again, you know, <laughs> it was quite interesting. Now the reason that Vedana is so important is that um, you know we're all very, very highly conditioned that when there's pleasant to get more of it, and when it's unpleasant to get rid of it, and when it's neither pleasant or pleasant to check out. Okay, and that's very, very deeply conditioned in all human beings. It's part of the human experience. <coughs> and it's partially why, um, you know, th- in the Buddhist teachings, they call the teachings going against the stream. Because most people, we live our lives, you know, trying to get more, you know, more money, more security, more this, more that, you know, always more, 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 more stimulation, more, more uh, experience, more, more, more. Or, you know, and definitely less of the stuff we don't want. Um, and it's against the stream, you know, to um, to not do that. Um, we used to joke, um, you know, at our sangha, you know, and when we're doing fundraising, you know, and and um, you know, trying to buy the center, you know, and and um, you know that one of the problems we have in fundraising is that uh, you know people who practice this practice tend to be downwardly mobile. Um, <laughs> So, you know, our values, you know, might change, you know, we might be, um, as we practice. Um, You know, and when we allow these feelings, uh, these feeling tones, this valence to just really come and go, that's really what invites this natural, deeper state of peace that arises in meditation when we're not getting caught by those things, that m- a much deeper state of peace can rise. 
So when, when these things come up, there's basically three things we can do, right? We can observe it, which is really the main practice is we watch what's watch it ple- we watch the pleasant come and we watch the pleasant go that's kind of the ideal what we're aiming for we watch it come and go come and go and not grab onto it right that's observing we also can respond to it skillfully for instance um, if the fire alarm went off right now i would very much hope you wouldn't all just be sitting there observing right you know you do what's needed and then the third thing is the unskillful part is reacting, you know, where, um, you know, there was something you liked at lunch and you go for the fourth helping, you know, and until um, you're stuffed, right? So, um, you know, my, um, uh, you know, uh, many years ago I did a three-month retreat and it was my v- longest retreat, my first three-month retreat, and I was like, really a big deal you know in my mind I was you know I'm gonna get in line you know this is this is it for me this is that that big push you know and you know and I you know I really planned for it and I um, you know I would do really a lot of sit a lot of extra sitting and and I got in really good shape with yoga so I'd be really ready for this retreat you know and and, you know for first few days first you know went really well and you know everything's like kind of going just just as I expected. And then about, I think about a week in, the jackhammering started. And there was a jackhammer going all day long, kind of right outside the window, they're building a wall. And I didn't notice unpleasant. <laughs> I noticed anger and rage. And uh, actually, I didn't notice it. I was just all caught in it, you know. You know, how dare they do this when I'm trying to get enlightened, you know. And... Um, and, you know, it, but, you know, I was, but, you know, you're, you're stuck there. You flew three, th- you know, uh, across the country. You know, you, I don't have a car. You know, might as well keep practicing, right? You know, and so, um, you know, I'd watch Unpleasant. I'd get caught and watch, get caught, you know. And, um, and I never noticed when I stopped reacting to it. It was still there all day long. But it was just this unpleasant sound, which I didn't even notice it was unpleasant anymore. It was just a sound. And uh, it was really, uh, uh, really important for me. This, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, it's like this non-ideal retreat condition, but yet uh, it, I learned so much from it, you know. And, uh, uh, and it was just like just another, another thing that came and went. And that's, I think, the beauty of retreat practice, you know, because it's so simple that we get to see these things, that in our daily life, there, you know, everything gets crowded by our activity and by all the input and all the this, all the that, you know, whereas in retreat life, you can really slow down, you know, you, you actually can notice when you get up in bed, uh, wake up in bed in the morning, you know, and, ah, oh, this is really pleasant, you know, you wake up, you're kind of dreamy, it's kind of a s- very sweet, sweet spot, and you notice that, you know, they, they rang the bell, and you only have so much time to shower and get up, and you should get up right then and there, and all of a sudden you go, oh, no, I want to stay here, <laughs> you know, and you, you contract. Really notice the difference between the sweet, pleasant state and I want to stay in bed. They're very different. You've lost your pleasure. By the time you, you've said, I want to stay in bed, you've actually lost the experience of pleasure. 
And that's what's really interesting about craving. But yet you still want it because you remember it, right? You know, so you still want it. And, um, you know, same thing, you know, at lunch, you know, they serve, uh, you know, your least favorite food in the world. Uh, you know, and do you just notice, oh, I'm pleasant? Or do you feel sorry for yourself? I didn't didn't get a good meal, you know. Um, I've done all of that, you know. <laughs> so I think we're all familiar with this. You know, or the, you know, the, um, you know, they say that, um, somebody said, I, you know, I don't know how they counted, but that 98% of our experience is neither pleasant or unpleasant. I notice from experience it's a lot of it, the majority of what we experience, right? Like most of our moments aren't moments of pleasure or moments of aversion, you know, of unpleasant. You know, they're just kind of ordinary uh, moments. And what happens with ordinary moments? We space out. We tend to not notice anything. Uh, we get caught in ideas in our minds. Um, you know, one of the things that's helpful to do is to really notice how the body feels when pleasant arises. You know, there's a kind of this, ah, there's a kind of a relaxed uh, or excited or, you know, there's definitely physical sensations <coughs> that come with pleasant. And it actually, by connecting with it, um, kind of can help us not get caught. And same thing, like whenever something unpleasant arises, there's a contraction, you know. And so notice how you contract. Notice the body, if you can. I mean, sometimes it comes and goes, so then let it go. Um, and, you know, when it's neutral, see if you can arrive in the body. Because typically we just leave the body. We just go into our thoughts and thinking and, and planning and, um, you know, worrying and all the different ac mental activities we tend to reflexively do. So <coughs> the, there's like two approaches that we can, uh, well, that I, that I use for working with Vedana, with uh, um and to notice the difference, really notice the difference very carefully between the exper that experience of pleasant and the craving for more, the reaction to it. And so when you notice that difference, one of the things that is incredibly freeing about it is that you really begin to see, to really get on a very deep level, that all pleasure is impermanent. It's all impermanent. It all fades. Uh, you can't hold on to it. You can't keep it. You know, and so when you, when you really get that on a very deep level, you know, there's intellectual getting and there's th getting it in a much deeper level. And that's, as we practice, that level of getting impermanence. Like everybody says, yeah, of course everything's impermanent. You know, but that's up here. You know, there's something that when it gets into your bones that really affects or... Um, you know, or the quality of our connection in our in our life that it, uh, affects our freedom. Um, and you know, noticing the difference between, in particular, have any of you had, uh, you know, how many of you have had pain during this retreat? Right, quite a quite a lot of you have had pain, right? And so, what's the difference between the pain? the sensa unpleasant sensations of pain and our aversion to it. That line, 
You know, often when pain arises, you know, we're hating it. You know, we just want it to go away. And we think we're paying attention to the pain. And we don't realize that what's really happening, the, the, the more compelling thing is our resistance to the pain or aversion to the pain, not wanting it to be there. Um, I've spent definitely some some sittings saying to myself, well, what, you know, maybe I'll take a hot shower and once these feels my shoulder feels a little better, then I'll be able to meditate. It's okay to not pay attention to the rest of the sit. You know, I've got pain. I can, you know, I, I can just uh, ignore it for now, you know. And, and um, you know, so there's, you know, um, it's really important to really notice that, that, uh, really careful difference, you know. But, um, but having said that, um, we don't have to do it all at once. And what I mean by that, if you if people have chronic pain, um, that may not be so helpful for actual physical pain. Uh, it might be more helpful to meditate in areas that don't hurt. Uh, to to use different approaches if you have chronic pain, so I want to make sure to differentiate between uh, people who you know once they stop sitting or you know after a couple of days you know that it's just you know uh, that it's just a temporary thing that you know is temporary. It's very different to work with that kind of pain than with pain that's chronic all the time. Uh, so. Um, but regardless of, of pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, uh, some pain is really huge, like for instance, grief. Um, and we might not be, especially when it's fresh, we might not be able to, or it might not be healthy for you to, uh, you know, stay with it and touch it and be with it completely. It might be enough to, okay, a minute here, that's enough, and back away. You can just refocus the attention. Um, but really notice that, that difference between this unpleasant, um, unpleasant things, difficult, painful things, and our reactions to it. The greater our capacity to be with what's difficult, the greater our capacity to experience pleasant. Um, and, and it works both ways. The more we experience, are able to experience pleasant, the more capacity increases for the difficult. So it's something that builds. Um, and so part of what we're doing this practice is kind of building our ability to be with whatever whatever is difficult. Um, a lot of people don't realize that we can have just as much difficulty opening to pleasure as we do to the um, unpleasant. You know, uh, um, I'll share with you uh, a practice. I haven't done this. It's a practice a friend did, you know, and and I I think it's a great practice. So uh, she was really determined, you know. She's a pra long time practitioner. She really wanted to work with this practice to really learn how to work with pleasure, and so um, they you know they called it the Ben and Jerry meditation, and uh, so the two friends sat across the table from each other. You know, each with a, uh, I guess, a p 
pint of you know of their favorite um, uh, Ben and Jerry's flavor and a spoon. You know, those are the tools of the of the practice, and um, you know, and just slowly, really watched. You know, the pleasure rise, the craving arise, and um, and then what was interesting they each had permission to grab each other's hands at any given point and so at any point while they're eating it somebody could take it away from you (laughs) basically and uh, so it's a very very rich practice you know Um, (laughs) in more ways than one yes (laughs) Um, it's a practice I've done um, I've worked with uh, cold showers, you know, ending for years um, on and off, you know, I've in my nice warm showers with a cold shower. And I've done it as a practice, you know. Um, and so really noticing, you know, that wonderful warmth, you know, and then that tendency to cling to want to continue it. And then when I've decided I'm going to go cold, it's like that, uh, that aversiveness, you know, which is different than the actual sensations of the cold. You know, the that that fear of it, that that you know, um and you know it's a and it's really a nice practice because, you know, I, I do have control over the knob, you know, and so it kind of gives me enough security to be able to pra- really relax into the practice. You know, I um you know, and, and open to it, you know, because I know, you know, I can, hey, I can if I have to shut it off. You know, I walk away. Um You know, when we stop chasing pleasure, you know, when we do it less and less, um, you know, the the simple pleasures in life start become um, become more noticeable. Uh, we stop like trying to get that perfect vacation, that um, you know, that perfect house, that perfect piece of art, that perfect whatever it is that people cling to. That perfect uh, uh, Tesla is one of the ones that kind of hangs around here a lot. Um, and um, you know, it's not that the any any of those things are wrong or anything, but it's just that that um, that craving for these things it's the it's how we get contracted around these things and uh so then all the we start noticing and and probably you have already in retreat quite a bit you start noticing just a lot more the simple just the wind in our hair the warmth of the sun um the the sound of a child laughing in the distance you know all the little things you know that um you know a lot more of them you know suddenly pleasures everywhere uh it's it's much easier to find when um when we stop craving So I wanted to talk a little bit about neutral and boring. Um, How many of you have been bored today? So not that many? Okay. So a number of you. Um, So most of our experience, as I said, is ordinary. It's neither pleasant or unpleasant. It means we have a lot of opportunity to work with neutral, 
right? You know, um, on retreat, on, in daily life, you know, w we have all these activities we do, you know, w uh, brush your teeth, uh, shower, um, you know, walk, go to the grocery store, uh, you know, do errands, you know, all sorts of things that we do that, uh, that are neutral, you know, they're neither, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And uh, every one of those moments are times when we can explore this. And that's why I, I stress so much in this practice and on this retreat to be show up for the transition times, because the transition times are often, you know, much of them are neutral. Um, and, you know, in, in our culture in particular, you know, we, have, we live in a culture uh, that preys on stimulation. You know, it, um, you know, tries to lure us out of being ordinary, right? It wants us to be excited and, and something new and something, there's always this drive, uh, um, um, you know, to, to not be neutral, uh, to be doing something exciting. And again, it's against the stream. You, you look at a, f a four-year-old, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what age they start saying, I'm bored, you know, but uh, most of you who are around kids, at some point, they say, I'm bored, right? Um, and so what, what is boredom? You know, what happens? It's one of two things. It's, it's either a lack of activity happening, there's just not much happening, and, um, and we don't like it, uh, or uh, what's happening is something we're not interested in. So, um, you know, people tend to think of boredom as neutral. Neutral things tend to trigger boredom, but boredom itself is unpleasant, right? Nobody likes being bored. It's, it, it, it's subtly, it's just a subtle unpleasantness. It's not unpleasant like pain, but it's an unpleasant experience. And we often miss that. You know, so we're, we keep trying to, okay, let me concentrate a little harder. Let me, uh, you know, focus a little differently, you know. But, but often when this, there's this feeling in the mind, you know, we get impatient because it's actually, uh, you know, at least that's more interesting, you know, being fidgety and impatient than, than nothing happening, you know. Um, but the really amazing thing about boredom is that if we're able to actually stay present with boredom, uh, uh, it transforms. Because when you bring attention to boredom, it gets interested. You know, you bring interest in it. It, it becomes really fascinating. I've never paid attention to boredom that I didn't get really interested in it. Um, even though initially it's like, oh, I don't want to pay attention to that. <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, as, as I... You know, attention is the remedy to boredom. Uh, innately, attention invigorates the the object, the the what we're doing in the moment. It brings energy. It brings um, uh, engagement in the object. I like. Um, um, you know, the, the concept of, uh, you know, if we're bored, we can bore into the moment. That's the, anyways, it's a whole pun. <laughs> um, so um, next I just wanted to touch on um, 
a little bit on the, um, you know, in, in um, some of the Buddhist psychology, uh, they refer to these three personality types. And uh, where each one of uh, type, one of these three valences, you know, um, are predominate. Like for instance, um, we can look at a meal, for instance, you know, uh, let's say we, you know, uh, let's go to that, that least favorite vegetable, right? And um, uh, a person who, who tends to um, uh, this, you know, go into the desire mode, wanting things. So, so three greed, I'm sorry, the three types are greed type, aversive type, and delusion type. Okay, so the desire type is the one that uh, might look at the food and say, um, you know, uh, oh, I really want, you know, pizza. Why don't they serve pizza? You know, the aversion type is, I would just hate that stuff. It's horrible. It's awful. So they're focused on what they don't like, you know. And the delusion type doesn't know what they're eating. You know, they're just, you know, uh, whatever whatever it is, you know. And... um, they, um, you know, it's way oversimplified, okay, but it's really to, to make the point, you know, we each have all three of them, um, but some of, them actu- some of us actually kind of lean in one direction more than the other, like if you're the kind of person that always sees what's wrong with everything, you tend to lean towards the aversive. You know, the person's always wanting something new and exciting, you know, that tends to be, you know, lean one way, and I'm not sure it's all that helpful to type yourself, but, but only to really look at these qualities inside of us. Um, but, you know, like the, the, the typical example of this is, you know, um, you know this, a person goes into this party of um, somebody uh, uh, just moved into their new home. It's this really big, beautiful home in the hills with a gorgeous view. And the um, greed type walks in, and the first thing they see, they see the view. And it's this amazing view. And, you know, it, and they notice how beautiful it is and this pleasant feeling. But immediately the mind says, well, I want a house just like this. I want this kind of view. And they've lost the pleasant feeling, right? They're just wanting. And, you know, and, and typically the mind will say, well, why didn't I get a better job? I got the wrong career. You know, I should have done this. And then I could have had a house like, just like this, you know. And, you know, in the same party, the, the um, aversive type walks in and they just see the stain on the carpet, you know. They, they, don't even, they might not even see that beautiful view or they might see, oh, there's, there's a foam pole over there that, oh, that really makes the view terrible, you know. How could they have put a foam pole there, you know. Um, and, you know, and as I said, the delusion type, you know, uh, didn't notice that they asked everybody to take off their shoes at the front door, you know. They just kind of walk in. Um, but what's beautiful about these, these t- uh, pra- tendencies, you know, is that they mature. You know, with practice, they all mature. And um, the, the, t- the desire type, um, because we, if we practice with them, we see the, um, the nature of impermanence as, 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 uh, as pleasure fades over and over and over again. And we relax into that, into that reality that life just comes and goes. It just, everything comes and goes, everything. Um, It gives us a certain level of trust and faith in our lives that, okay, we can meet anything. 
You know, we can show up for anything. And so it really develops a really sense of confidence in us. Um, as the aversive uh, parts of our minds mature, um, you know, we really connect with, the su- with suffering, with our own suffering, with the suffering of others, and, you know, compassion develops. Um, you know, we can't meet compassion, we can't meet the suffering of others fully unless we can meet our own suffering fully. Um, even though we might want to help, we might have that instinct to help, there's a certain way we hold back if we can't meet our own pain. Um, and it also, you know, aversion also matures into discernment, the ability to really see clearly. You know, they, um, I remember at, at uh, one of the retreat centers, you know, they, uh, they had this... Um, uh, the board, you know, had a lot of conflict, you know, and there was this one person there who um, was like really, um, you know, they, they were the aversive type, right, and they just saw what's wrong with um, uh, everything, every idea. Somebody bring up this great idea and they'd kind of shoot it down. Well, it won't work because of this, 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 and this, you know, and, um, you know, and so, um, uh, you know, there was so much friction because of this person that they decide, this person decided not to come because they, there was just so much friction being generated. And everybody else on the board seemed to be a greed type. And they all had these great ideas and didn't see what was wrong with them. And, um, and so they actually invited this person to come back because they realized that, that it was really helpful to to. Uh, see this way, um, which is which is sort of funny because you know it's kind of a, um, uh, but but it's um, uh, um, you know that that the quality that this person needed to do was bring a little more kindness into this, you know, and do it with a little bit more um, more gentleness, you know, and uh, and you know, and that's how we all learn to work with each other. Um, so you can see what's wrong, but do it respectfully if you're, d- if you're in a meeting. <laughs> um, so, and um, delusion, you know, um, I remember, um, you know, when um, uh, Sharon Salzberg used to say, you know, the best person to share hotel room with is delusion type. You know, because, you know, they don't care they've got the lousy bed. You know, they don't care, you know, they, they'll let you have everything that you like as they haven't noticed, you know. Um, but, um, so delusion really matures into a deep equanimity, you know. So as we uh, really connect, you know, if you take any moment of neither pleasant or unpleasant and just show up for it in your body, you know, that, I mean, that's, to me, that's how I show up. You know, I connect with my body. That's the first thing that I do if I find myself out in outer space somewhere. And I just arrive in my body. And every moment we do that, you know, um, uh, becomes rich again. It becomes connected. We're, we're back, back here. And so that develops a really deep equanimity, not a, not a, I don't care because I don't see anything and I don't know anything, but an equanimity that, that, that has wisdom in it, that sees clearly.
And so, so lastly, I just um, I want to say the the Buddha made a distinction, you know, between pleasure that comes from the senses and meditative pleasures. Um, and um, <coughs> you know, like chocolate cake is from the senses, and you know, the deep meditation it, it has. Uh, uh, the peace of a deep meditation, the tranquility, um, that has a lot of a lot of beautiful, beautiful uh, sensation, a lot of beautiful, uh, a, a greater pleasure, a much greater pleasure. Um, and we develop this practice by allowing ourselves to fully experience every single moment, just the way it is. And that's what's so beautiful. Is it, nothing has to be different. You know, if we're, if we're suffering, but we become aware of it and we really show up for our suffering, um, we're doing the practice, we're transforming it. And so that's how this practice develops, by showing up over and over and over again <coughs> to whatever, whatever arises. And, you know, that's the rhythm of practice, you know. Some of the time, you know, there's a lot of pleasant. Some of the time, it's a lot of struggle. And, uh, and as long as we're willing to keep showing up, you know, the, the practice continues to progress and to deepen. So, uh, so thank you.